My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Monica Dutt and Jared Knoll. The first time I heard the story about the babies in the river was probably close to 20 years ago. You might have heard it. You're standing by a river, minding your own business, and all of a sudden, you see a baby floating past. So, of course, you rush to rescue the baby. You pull it out of the river, bring it to safety, dry it off, and then you see another baby floating in the river, and another, and another, and you and other people around you are all taken up by rescuing these babies from the river. It's important work, but hopefully, sooner rather than later, someone thinks to ask, how are all these babies getting into the river, and heads upstream to find out? It's a story about the importance of thinking not just about harmful impacts, but about causes. About thinking not just about what's happening downstream, but about what's going on upstream that's creating those impacts. Today's guests are staff at an organization called Upstream, originally based in Saskatchewan, but with a growing presence across the country. Dr. Monica Dutt is a family doctor and public health physician, as well as Upstream's executive director, and Jared Knoll is the organization's communications coordinator. Upstream uses a version of the story about the babies in the river in an introductory video on their website. Upstream's work is based on a recognition that social factors have a profound impact on our health. Sure, eating well and getting plenty of exercise are still good things, but a big part of how healthy we are depends on social factors that are beyond our individual control. It's hard to eat well if you don't have the money to do so, for example, or if colonization and climate change mean you can't hunt for food the way you used to, or if your urban neighborhood has no grocery store nearby. And beyond that, there's substantial evidence that systemic experiences of wealth inequality, racism, colonialism, misogyny, homophobia, climate change, and other forms of injustice can take a toll on your health in all kinds of ways. Social determinants of health, these factors are sometimes called. Upstream responds to this understanding in a number of ways. It works with researchers and specialists with expertise in specific areas to stay on top of the most up-to-date evidence around how these social determinants shape our health. It uses that evidence in working with partners to establish recommendations for policy changes that will improve people's health. And it uses storytelling based in that evidence as a way both to engage in general public education around these issues and also to build networks of people that share the vision of not just fishing the babies out of the river, but of going upstream, understanding what's happening, and addressing the root social causes of people's ill health. Dutt and Noel speak with me about the social determinants of health, about the importance of storytelling, especially storytelling that is evidence-based, and about the work of upstream. I spoke with them by Skype from Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan, respectively. My name is Monica Dutt. I'm a public health physician and family physician in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and started as the executive director of Upstream at the beginning of April. I did a liberal arts degree at McMaster and there got involved with different social justice groups on campus. 
Amongst those, one in particular was one called Physicians for Global Survival, where there were a number of physicians in the Hamilton area involved with both local and global social justice issues, most particularly around health as a way for achieving peace. So through them, I got more involved with activism and got to know more about how as a physician you can be involved in activism. And from there, I did end up going to medical school at Queen's where I had some opportunity to explore some of those areas. I started a health and human rights conference there. I did different rotations and placements both within Canada and in northern Canada in particular, as well as internationally, and then went on to eventually do public health, which is a fairly small medical specialty that's quite unlike most others because you spend some of the time seeing patients. And I I did do my training as a family doctor, which I love, but you also do training in broader social justice, public policy issues. So you learn about environmental health and how our environment affects our health. You learn about even infectious diseases and get a better understanding, say, for example, how HIV is caused by so many different factors that you need to think quite broadly about something like an infection that often in medicine we think about quite narrowly. And then from there, I went on to work in different settings. I've worked in public health for several years. I've worked in northern Saskatchewan and in southern Ontario, in downtown Toronto and around there, and then now in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, which is a mixed urban rural setting for the last four years. And also have been involved in various volunteer activities, both local and national. One that's still continuing on right now is chair of a national organization called Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Most of my focus, though, has been on public health, which is why that fits so nicely into the work of Upstream, which is focused on health issues and how health ties into policy and decision making at different levels of government, as well as in other areas. I've worked in particular in northern Canada, where I think often a lot of the social and economic issues that impact health are quite evident and historical issues are evident in First Nations and Métis communities as well as in other settings from, you know, inner city, downtown Toronto, and really anywhere, anywhere you are, the patients I see as a family doctor, all of their health issues are impacted in some way by their environment and the opportunities that they have in life. And then in my public health work as a medical officer of health, which is a public health physician who works in a certain geographic area, you're always looking for ways to partner with different organizations related to housing, related to income, related to food security, and look at how as partners you can all work together to improve the environments for people so that they're better able to be healthy. And that's kind of what's taken me this far. And I have been working in public health, kind of a formal institutional setting for several years now. And I really wanted to jump into the nonprofit area, which I've done mainly in a volunteer capacity. And the opportunity came up with Upstream. And Upstream really brings together all the work and interest that I have in public health, but it's in a nonprofit setting, which gives you a whole other set of opportunities and challenges. But I was looking for something different. And and this is definitely something I was excited to do. I'm Jared Knoll. As part of Upstream, I help to translate evidence into stories, which we hope creates impact. What we do at Upstream, we're social movement mobilizers, we're social justice storytellers. We try to engage people on the idea that inequality literally kills us to help mobilize political pressure into policy action for the things that really make us healthy or sick. 
before I joined Upstream and really started learning about this whole health frame lens that we use, I mostly spent most of the last decade around Africa and Latin America trying to harness the power of information and honest information through its dissemination to hopefully make positive impacts. And after, after you know, five or six years of working in the developing world, I guess I thought I should stop looking elsewhere and, you know, worrying about self-aggrandizing by working in these far off places and focus more back home where there's equally vital and urgent crises to address. I never really heard the term social determinants of health or had much of a health background until I was in Cote d'Ivoire and a, a mini doc kind of fell through and my friend told me about this job and I had a referral from somebody else. So I thought, why not come back and see if I can return to my roots and try to make those positive impacts where I came from, where there are equally as urgent issues. Here in Saskatchewan, we have northern communities with HIV rates, for example, that are greater than almost anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Many places, people's homes burn down because they don't have water, where we can trace these incredible and unjust conditions to policy deficiencies and downstream thinking when we make them. So having this opportunity to use the health lens, which is so easy for everyone to grasp onto, the idea that everything we do is for our health, and to be able to use that frame to make the upstream action happen really appealed to me. So given how intensely individualistic most of the messages that most of us receive about health are, maybe a good place to start before we get into more of the work of the organization would be to talk a little bit more about what social determinants of health are. I often don't even tend to use the term social determinants of health unless it's speaking with people who are familiar with the term or if I have enough time to explain it. I think of it in terms of the places where we live, work, and play and how those affect us. So I think most people, especially if you tell a story about it, can understand those factors. So often I'll use a story about a patient or patients and, you know, your doctor tells you often that you need to eat healthy or you need to exercise. And I have conversations like that every day as a family doctor. But when you're telling someone or talking to someone about needing to eat healthy, but they can't afford the healthy food that you're encouraging them to eat, or they don't even have a grocery store in their area that they can go to, or they don't have a car or public transportation to get somewhere to buy the food, or they have a job where, you know, it's shift work and they can't get their regular hours, or they don't have childcare to even be able to do a lot of the things that they need to do to be healthy. People can often understand that all those things affect whether you can eat well and be healthy. So I try to tell stories to try to convey the information, but I often in talks or when I have more time to explain to people, I think of it's a picture that looks like a rainbow. So you're at the center of that. And every day we make all kinds of decisions around our health. But around us are all these layers of the rainbow that impact what decisions we can make. So that might be your education. That might be your housing situation. That might be your social supports around you. All of those things are around you and they actually contribute about 75% to your health decision. So we often think of health in terms of health care, but the healthcare system only contributes about 25% of our health. The rest of it is all these other things around us that really contribute to making us healthy. 
I try to describe it like that with stories and pictures. And then the next layer to get into is that all of those factors are impacted by even deeper causes. So whether that's things like transphobia or misogyny or capitalism or racism. So these are really very structural embedded systems that make it so that one group of people or certain people might be healthier than other people. Those are the deeply embedded systems that ultimately and ideally we want to change those to be able to impact people's health. A lot of upstream thinking physicians understand that, well, the conventional wisdom around health is things like don't smoke, don't eat unhealthy food, practice exercising regularly. The deeper, more effective advice would be don't be poor. Don't be born to poor parents in a bad neighborhood. Practice not losing your job. So we've got a theme coming up for what's called the Trinity Trap, smoking, exercise and eating. So we've got a piece coming out called The Social Determinants of Obesity, The Social Determinants of Smoking, The Social Determinants of Exercise, and a podcast and probably a video piece. Trying to get past that behavioral model of putting all the blame for bad health on personal responsibility. The name currently escapes me, but a U.S. senator, I think, was kind of blowing up saying that, you know, we shouldn't be too concerned about paying for people's health care because they made bad or sinful decisions, and that's why they have bad health. So why should people who make good choices pay for the health care of people who make bad choices? So the upstream social determinants whole frame of thinking is about saying, let's look deeper at what really matters, not just saying, let's blame people for bad choices. So I know there's some history, at least, of resistance within the medical profession to this more social way of understanding health. Is that still sufficiently present that it's something that Upstream runs into in the course of doing your work? I'd say it's changing in medicine. I think that can still be said for the most part that a lot of medicine still tends to focus on the individual and the medical solutions to health problems. But I do think there is a shift you know, look at the Canadian Medical Association, our national body. We've had recent presidents who have been very conscious of social and economic influences on health. To take a very specific upstream example, though, and Jared was more involved in the development of this, but we recently put out a book in collaboration with the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. It's called Upstream Medicine, and it's interviews by medical students across the country with physicians across the country who really do this type of upstream work. And there were many more physicians that probably could have been interviewed, but it's a whole range of different topics from physicians involved with climate change advocacy, from physicians involved with Indigenous health issues. There's a whole number of physicians and learners, medical students, and of course, residents who are really getting involved in this area and really taking it on and really charging forward to make it be clear that as, as clinicians, as people in medicine, of course, we need to look after the individual needs of our patient in front of us. But until we do more to change the environment around our patients, we will have a continuing struggle. Our patients will continually struggle to actually be able to achieve good health. So yes, it's definitely still a mentality in medicine to often not think about these broader issues, but it's changing. And I think this is one way in which Upstream has really brought out the fact that things are changing and things need to change by highlighting the role that medical students and physicians across the country have in terms of bringing this health lens to all these policy issues. Tell me about the founding and the core activities of Upstream. Upstream started when there was the coalescence of vision and funding. 
there were a lot of folks in Saskatchewan and nationally that had this political history, this political engagement, and just a lot of frustration for lack of opportunities for these sorts of upstream policies that would strike to the source causes of our challenges rather than just addressing the symptoms of the social and economic diseases we face. And when that coalesced with really fortunate funding opportunities, this vision came to fruition. Folks like Ryan Miley, Rachel Malia, Dave Mitchell, Ryan Basaraba, Steve Allen, a lot of folks who are still on the upstream board and still part of the organization. Steering from this idea from Virchow and others that politics is medicine on a larger scale, and whether you're a physician or someone interested in social justice or someone just interested in making the economy better and our political system more democratic, to be able to have this group of people with appropriate funding to mobilize political pressure excited a lot of people. And yeah, 2013 Upstream was born. The think tank side of Upstream has involved research and evidence gathering and contributing to policy recommendations. And so some of the work where that has happened has been in Saskatchewan, and it's been in areas, say, around a living wage and working with different organizations in the Saskatoon area in particular around bringing a, a living wage and, and moving that policy forward in Saskatoon. We've been involved with poverty reduction and poverty elimination activities, again, mainly in Saskatchewan. We've been involved in health impact assessments, which is this idea that any policy decision, you should be looking at the health impacts of those decisions. So, for example, Saskatoon was looking at a municipal growth strategy and Upstream collaborated with the Saskatoon Health Region to do an analysis of how those policy decisions could impact health. And there was another layer in terms of equity, which means that they were looking at how it might impact certain groups more than other groups and then ultimately make recommendations around that. So that's that side of it. Jared, do you have anything more you would add to that around the think tank side? Not really. We are so fortunate to work with so many amazing researchers and experts, and we've got such a great coordinator for all of them. We have such a great opportunity right now with all the amazing research and data being done. Folks like the Canadian Index for Wellbeing, folks like CAPE Doctors, folks like the Atkinson Foundation, looking into the hard data because we try to make everything evidence-based but people-focused. You know, I always point to Jenny McCarthy as the example of story impacts people, story moves people better than data. But by having that data-based think tank, getting the evidence on what really makes us healthy or sick, we can then translate that into stories that move people to action. That's really brought us into some of the national work and work in other parts of the country that we're moving more and more towards. But as we can bring in more people and organizations that are working across the country, we've been expanding to be a truly national organization. And that's something that we're continuing to build. One arm of that is the public pressure that we try to generate, changing the conversation. You know, people ask, what can we do? What can I do as an individual, as what Justin Trudeau calls an everyday Canadian? What can I do? And even just talking about this stuff around the dinner table, even just raising up this whole attitude of looking deeper is a really important part of it. But a lot of stuff we do is also bringing together the policy crafters, the decision makers with some of the top experts around the globe. And one thing we've done that's worked really well the last couple of years is our Closing the Gap event in Ottawa, where last year we had probably the person, the guru on the social determinants, Michael Marmot along with Health Minister Jane Philpott and a lot of other folks in decision-making roles. And this year, we had Minister Carolyn Bennett and Richard Wilkinson, who's another one of the top experts in the world on how inequality and poverty and things like that impact our health. 
And getting all those people in the same room and, and bringing them to dinner together and just having conversations, along with a lot of tomorrow's leaders like Max Feinde and Amelie Nicolas, we find it's really created a powerful thing. At the more local level, we were deeply involved with a poverty reduction advisory group that stemmed from a poverty costs campaign that we did with other organizational partners to calculate exactly how much the province of Saskatchewan pays to maintain poverty. And the number we came up with was with $3.8 billion per year, which would be enough to give each person in Saskatchewan $2,000 cash every single month. So we spent a lot to maintain poverty. And so with the advisory group, that was to form a reduction strategy that would be presented to the provincial government. And we've got some videos and some content around that and sort of explaining that at thinkupstream.net that go into more detail. We also have the Living Wage Saskatoon project, which has calculated the living wage in Saskatoon and also rallied and mobilized local businesses and employers to tell their stories about how paying a living wage doesn't just give Canadians the chance to be able to, you know, if you, if you put your whole life into a job, you should get paid enough to live. But it also shows that it's really profitable for employers. If you've got employees who are not constantly living in an existential struggle, they tend to be more retentive. They tend to be more productive. And when we look at the evidence, it pays off to pay people enough to live. In every social determinant, we've got an organizational partner or half a dozen. For early childhood development education, we work with groups like Atkinson. For food security, we work very closely with Food Secure Canada, Nourish. Some food banks locally more, but that's more in terms of consultations and stuff to go deeper. For the environment, we work with CAPE doctors and other environmental groups. For precarious work and decent jobs, we work with the Decent Health and Work Network, the Urban Workers Project, both in Ontario. The list goes on and on and on. So one thing that has emerged really strongly in what you've been talking about today and is very present on your website is the importance of storytelling to Upstream's work. Talk about that, both about the significance in general of storytelling and specifically about what it means to engage in evidence-based storytelling. Let me talk for a quick second about Jenny McCarthy. Every time I give a lecture or a talk or a presentation, I usually try to work in a little clip. Tens of millions of people, probably worldwide, it might be even 100 million, I hope not, believe that autism is caused by vaccines. There is not a single shred of evidence. The original study, as you may know, was 12 children, a sample size and complete lack of rigor or data and basis. And yet tens, perhaps 100 million people believe that nonsense, including the president of the United States. There's not a shred of data for that, but people are moved by stories. Jenny McCarthy is an incredible storyteller. She's got this personal emotional journey with her son. Sometimes she brings him on and talks with him. People, on the other hand, you know, we have amazing amounts of data to show what really works for making our country healthier, our economy stronger, people's lives better. But when all we have is the data, it's hard to move people when we're fighting against so many people out there with agendas and stories to tell. So when we can marshal the power of people with firsthand lived experience of poverty, of addiction, crime, social isolation, precarious work, unemployment, you name it. With climate change, we try to provide a platform for people who had been displaced by forest fires, for example, to show how climate change isn't a problem for 100 years from now. It's affecting our health today. So by working with artists, sometimes musicians, sometimes photographers, video makers, animators, to connect them with people with firsthand lived experience and to tell the story that is propelled by the data and the evidence, we found that to be an incredibly powerful tool towards getting policy done that makes all of our lives better. This is the place where I was really attracted to Upstream because 
working in public health, we work on many of the same issues and we tend to have a lot of evidence and information and background. And that's often what we bring to the conversation. But we often didn't have that either partnership or be able to take that next step to be able to convey the message in a way that does use storytelling, does use all the different platforms that we've been using from blogging to videos to podcasts to interviews and using personal stories and people who can combine the evidence and the storytelling together is a really powerful combination that I think is sometimes missing in some of the more formal settings where there might not be the ability to be that innovative or to work that quickly upstream really is able to do that. What would you say are the limits and challenges and barriers to the particular approach that upstream takes to creating change? There's always the challenges that come with being a, a nonprofit and all the pieces that come with that, whether it's the funding and, you know, areas like that, always needing to find ways to support the work. But I think the next step is being able to have people incorporate the work into policy, which has happened in some cases, but it is always a difficult thing to change policymakers' minds. It's always, for many advocacy organizations, a barrier to try to convince people to actually take the next step, which may involve, you know, investing in a way that they might not want any kind of major policy change. It is a long road sometimes, and you do need to plan for that. And I guess it's not just all about government and policymakers. It's about galvanizing people. It's about a movement. It's about having individuals and communities caring about these issues and seeing it as connected to their lives and using health as a way to help support the work that might be happening at a very grassroots community level. And so with that kind of work, you definitely need to be connected in with communities. The only thing I would add is that because we have such a wide scope because if we're one day or one week focusing on the determinants of homelessness and the next week doing food security, the next week doing precarious work, the next week doing racism, gender equity, it's just not possible for any of us to be experts on any one category or any one social determinant, any one challenge. So we rely very heavily on partner groups and our think tank cluster of researchers to provide that expertise for us. But that always being aware and plugged into so many different issues, it presents a challenge, I think an exciting one. What's coming up for Upstream? It's really excited about expanding more nationally. Some of our policy work has been somewhat more focused within Saskatchewan, though it's all work that can be expanded and applied beyond Saskatchewan. So we do have some opportunities that we're working on, particularly around this idea of health and all policies. So the idea that all policies being made thinking about health. So we hope to be working with different levels of government to be able to incorporate that into government decision making. I think the storytelling aspect of our work, there are many ways in which we could be using that in terms of partnership. We could find groups and organizations at a national level that are trying to get these messages across that we can really support and work with. Internally, we're going through a strategic planning process, which I think will be very exciting to kind of renew exactly what our direction will be now, now that we have, you know, I'm on board as a almost full-time executive director and we're expanding in terms of staff. And now that we have these opportunities, how do we really use that for the next few years to direct our work? You have been listening to my interview with Dr. Monica Dutt and Jared Knoll of Upstream. To learn more about their work, go to thinkupstream.net. That's thinkupstream.net.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.